0: Wherever you are, let's be still and quiet before our God as we read Scripture and pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind, When distress and anguish come on you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me, because they hated knowledge and do not choose the fear of the Lord. They spurned my reproof, so they will eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices." Father, I can't help but read these words and be reminded of the day in which we find ourselves. We are a nation, we've become a world that said, we don't want you. And you are allowing us to be satiated with the devices of our own disobedience. But we thank you that you rule and reign, that someday you will bring to a culmination all of your promises, everything that you said for you cannot lie. Thank you for your faithfulness to us as a people and to your sovereign purposes. You promised us and you have fulfilled it that when we call upon Christ in faith that you will send us the Spirit as our helper. And we're grateful for him today. We ask our Father that you would uh, help us as we read your word to have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that You would fill me and strengthen me in my weakness, that You would come and fill me by Your Spirit and use me. Speak to each and every heart, wherever they may be, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to the book of Malachi chapter 4, Malachi 4. It's easy to find because it's the very last book, the last page of the Old Testament. It's a short little gem of a prophecy inspired by God the Holy Spirit through the human author, Malachi was a prophet who prepared his people for the first coming of the Messiah, but he's also a prophet who is preparing the people, Jew and Gentile alike, who are alive today for the second coming of the Messiah. Now, if you're joining us, we've been in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. Elijah was a man who lived in very, very difficult times, much like our own, and there are many great lessons that we can learn from studying his life. Now, this is the 10th of 10 messages in this series. And if you've not been with us, you can go to searchthescriptures.org at the website or you can download the phone app and you can listen to all the messages. Now, I know if you were here last time, you know that I preached on Elijah's departure where he was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. And for many of you, you thought, well, that's the end of the series. But as you can see, it's not the end. Today, we're speaking about Elijah's return. In both the Old and the New Testament, speak that Elijah the prophet is coming again. And I'm going to show you a number of passages today that teach that. We'll use Malachi chapter 4 as kind of our base camp, and we'll uh, go out from there. But for some 2,000 years, the body of Christ has expected the return of Elijah. Even Jewish people believe Elijah is coming again. Every Passover, the first night of Passover, they have a Seder meal, there's always one empty spot, one plate, and one cup that's filled in honor of Elijah. Why? Because they believe Elijah is going to come again to announce Messiah's return. Now, for, them, for us, it's a return. For them, it's the first coming. But they're going to have their eyes open. But what they do and what they teach in reference to Elijah is right on, because that's precisely what the Bible says. And so I hope this morning you will see that. I hope you have found it. Malachi chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, come to one of our Meet the Pastors. You really need one. You'll get so much more out of any sermon with a paper copy. Yes, this is actually a Bible. I know we have these electronic jobbers, but they're not the same in terms of helping you to find your way around Holy Scripture. Malachi chapter 4. We're going to focus just on verses 4 through 6 this morning. But to give you a flow of the chapter and where he's been, I want to begin reading in verse 1. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. In the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse." Now, may I tell you, we are living in a dark day in human history. It's a dark hour domestically, internationally, spiritually, morally. Unless you think that this is just the 1960s replaying themselves, the fact is, is that the climate in America has radically changed in 60 years. For instance, if you were a young person att- attending the government schools in 1960, virtually every public school in America began with a prayer, a Bible reading, and in most schools, the Pledge of Allegiance. There was a standard national prayer that was offered to God asking for His blessing on the school, on the teachers, and the students, and on the nation. Back then, in one sense, we were much more one nation under God, and to some degree, God's name was honored even in the classrooms. In fact, in 1960, the top seven disciplinary problems were, quote, talking, chewing gum, making noises, running in the halls, cutting in line, improper clothing, and not disposing of one's trash. Today in America, God has been thrown out of our schools, and let me tell you what the top seven or eight are. God is out, but assault, robbery, drugs, teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted disease, rape, bombings, and murders are all in. We've taken the Ten Commandments off the walls, and we've had to put policemen in the halls. And so this morning, there are people who even want to eliminate the police, to defund them, to radically either get rid of them or to limit them in number, in a day when lawlessness is growing. That's not even smart. And apart from the violence that we're seeing in our cities across America today, apart from that, statistical governmental evidence shows that since 1960, violent crime has quadrupled in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 1960, approximately 200,000 couples lived together unmarried. Today... The number has risen to 17 and a half million. TV, for the most part, was relatively wholesome, but now national and cable networks are pumping soft porn into our living rooms. And just last week, Hallmark announced that the LGBTQ storyline will fill their characters and their actors starting this fall. And sadly, 40% of babies born in America are born out of wedlock. I hope you know there are no illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. Every child has a right to live. And yet, Roe v. Wade, since 1973, we have aborted 62 million-plus babies. What's happening in America today? We talk about a sexual revolution. Well, we've had a sexual revolution, all right, and it's revolting. And I mean... The statistics are in, the harvest is in, it's multiplying, and we have liberal pastors and liberal media and liberal politicians who say that we need to shed these puritanical restraints so that we can find true freedom. They say everything is okay, it's all right, as long as it's between two consenting adults. And so this month in Massachusetts, in one town, Somerville, they legalize polyandry, polygamous marriages. And so our nation has been flooded with books and films and music and talk shows and sitcoms and advertisements and pop stars and internet websites that glorify perversion. In young people, in the middle and high school schools, yes, even in our own county, not to mention the university level, are being taught that promiscuity and the LGBTQIA plus lifestyle is normal and natural. The Supreme Court as well this month redefined the word sex under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that will have huge ramifications on transgender students playing campus sports. So a guy who says he's a woman can play on a woman's team. A guy who says he's a woman can live with a lady in the residence halls as a roommate. And there will be, I'm sure, lawsuits and huge implications, not only for employers, but for churches. When transgender people come here and they're welcome, we want to win transgender people and homosexual people and heterosexual Immoral people, drunkards, prostitutes, whoever you are, we want to reach you with the good news. But transgender people are going to come here and they're going to want to use, some guy, a woman's bathroom. Not on my watch. It won't happen, I promise you. But I have good news for you. There is a new day that is coming. And the prophet Malachi tells us about it in our passage. When the Son of Righteousness, a metaphor for the S-O-N, when Jesus, Messiah, will come back... And he will rule and reign. Look how chapter one, verse 4, chapter 4 and verse 1 begins. Malachi says, "'For behold, the day is coming.'" Notice verse 3. He, God speaks of the day which I am preparing. In verse 5, the prophet Malachi mentions the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. "'A new day is coming.'" But before it is initiated, Elijah is coming. That's what we see. In fact, in this portion of Scripture, there are two primary characters, Moses and Elijah. And it's hardly by accident because they appear very, very closely together, not just in this passage, but in other passages. And both Moses and Elijah give a message about the past and the future, And we will see that these two truths about the past and the future that are taught in Malachi are also echoed in a number of New Testament passages. If you want to take down some notes, just two simple points this morning. First, we learn from Malachi that we are to look to the past and remember. We are to look to the past and remember. Again, here in verses 4 through 6, it's hardly by accident that the two primary characters are Moses and Elijah. Moses the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great preaching prophet to the people of Israel. And I suppose that we should not be totally surprised that these two men are together because they towered above their contemporaries and their colleagues in the day. And both passed into eternity under unusual circumstances. Moses died and God dug his grave and it was known only to the Lord God. God. Elijah, before he left this earth, we studied last week, he was brought up into heaven in a whirlwind, presumably into paradise. And both of these men, if you remember, met the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And both of these men summarize and sum up the entire Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament. Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. And so a Jew, of course, doesn't refer to his Bible as the Old Testament. They have just one. They call it often the Law and the Prophets, or sometimes they refer to their Bible as Moses and Elijah. Jesus himself on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24 spoke of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms as he opened the Scripture to those men. Moses is the great lawgiver. Elijah is the great prophet. And of course, these men summarize the whole Bible. Moses wrote the first five books in the Bible called Torah or the law. Jews are a lot smarter than the liberal Protestant and Catholic preachers of our day who say there's multiple authors to Moses. No, there's one author. That's what Jesus affirmed. That's what I believe. There's no such thing as the JEPD theory where there are multiple authors, there's one author. So they refer to the first five books as Moses. Now, they understand they have the same 37 books of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament that we have. They don't have 39 in number because some books, like Kings, are brought together in one book. But they have the same books we have. But what is different is the way they order those books. And so from Joshua to Malachi, they call that the prophets. So when you see here on the last page of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, in many ways, they sum up the entire Bible. So here's Malachi, the last prophet and writer of the entire Old Testament, and he concludes his prophecy first by asking us to remember Moses. When God says, remember the law here in verse four, he wanted that to ring in their ears like the phrase, remember the Alamo would ring in the ear of a Texan. He's saying, remember the law. Don't forget what happened at Horeb. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Now, the Hebrew word remember is the word zakar. It doesn't simply mean to call to mind, but it speaks of acting on something. And you see it used that way habitually in Scripture. For instance, when God gave the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 and the Ten Commandments, he mentions the Sabbath day when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it Holy. He's speaking and asking for obedience. Likewise, when God told the Jews to make a tassel and to sew it on the corner of their garments, as the Orthodox people do to this day, in Numbers chapter 15, God said this, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So again, this Hebrew word remembrance can't be separated from obedience. And the Lord used it in the same way when he asks us to remember him at his table. When we remember Jesus at the table, there is a, uh, a time of reflection that should cause us to respond in obedience, so when he says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, he's exhorting the people to live in accordance with the law. Now, notice two here in verse one, Moses is not called the lawgiver. He is not described as a legislator. He's described as a servant. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. That's a great title in which to summarize someone's life. In fact, using similar words, the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 3, 5 says, Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. And here, as much as anything, Moses is remembered as God's servant. Why? He's reminding us that he is writing on behalf of God with God's authority. Now listen to the whole verse. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now, it's rather striking that Malachi refers to a specific place, namely Horeb, that in Exodus is called the mountain of God. And the reason he's bringing to mind this place is he wants to bring to their remembrance a specific event. He's taking the nation here at the end of the Bible of their Old Testament all the way back to that time when God met Moses at Mount Horeb, also called in the Bible Mount Sinai after its physical location there in the desert of Sinai, the place where with thunder and fire God came down on the mountain and met Moses. Moses on Mount Sinai was given the law. He was given the commandments of God. And as God's servant, he took that law and he presented it to the people of Israel. And so we have a formal record of that presentation in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen listen to the opening words of Deuteronomy chapter 1. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. And Then he says in verse 5, "'Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law.'" And that's what pastors are supposed to do. They're not to expound their own thoughts. They are to expound the text of Scripture. And after God's law is clearly spelled out by Moses through God's servant Moses, He gave a warning at the end of the book. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But the opposite is also true in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. God promised that if the nation obeyed, he would bless them. Some blessings, even to this day, are conditional in nature. And so God spelled it out. And this covenant that Malachi is reminding the people to obey was not just for the Jew in Moses' day, but for the Jew in every generation. And that's why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, not now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. And so Malachi is appealing to the people to remember, to obey, and he takes them all the way back to Horeb. And just know that God is not asking them to do the impossible. That's not the kind of God we serve. And so Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy 30, beginning now in verse 11, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. You know these words from Romans 10. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And of course, if you've read Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, then you know that the nation will not listen to this counsel. And as God prophesied, they would fall away and be scattered. Now, God always has his remnant. In every generation, there's always a remnant of people who faithfully followed the Lord. And there was a remnant in Malachi's day who faithfully followed the Lord. So some 400 years later, when the Messiah comes on the scene, on the day of Pentecost, everyone who's converted is Jewish. The church, as it began, was all Jewish, because there was a remnant that honored what God had said through prophets like Malachi, and they believed. But overall, he came to his own, and his own received him, not John Will write. For the most part, the Jewish people in Christ's day and in our day are in unbelief. And so God did precisely what he warned them and prophesied of. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. He's not talking about the Babylonian captivity. He's speaking of the same thing that Jesus said would happen in the Olivet Discourse, that they would be scattered to the ends of the earth. Then he says in verse 66 of that chapter, so your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. And that verse in many ways really summarizes the history of the Jewish people. However, God went on to prophesy that a day would come when the nation would respond. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcast at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back and the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover... The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Moses is prophesying a day when the Jewish people will repent. When God would gather the Jewish people from the ends of the earth, there's over a hundred different languages spoken by the Jewish people in Israel today, though the national language, of course, is Hebrew. God is doing what He said, and Moses, if you've read these chapters, puts us at the end of time, as does Jeremiah, as does Ezekiel. At the end of time, just before Messiah comes, God would gather the Jews from the four corners of the world. We studied this in the Revelation. What we are seeing today is the Jewish miracle where we've gone from approximately 20,000 Jews to over 7 million Jews of the 12 and a half million Jews on the earth, and the prophets are clear that not 100% will come back, we are seeing an amazing thing. This is a frequent theme in the prophets, that God will first gather them, then He will regenerate or circumcise their hearts. And so the Bible teaches that before and during the Great Tribulation period, Jews from all over the world will come to Israel. Even those Jewish people in New York, 240,000, since March, have made application to take up full residency in New York. It's not by mistake. This is a work of God. God is reestablishing Israel as a nation, but this is just a foretaste of what's going to happen. And so Moses and Malachi are asking us to remember what God spoke through His servant. Now, stay with me. God included the book of Malachi for a reason, and He included these last three verses for a reason, though most commentaries don't even mention them. They skip over them or they just summarize them in a single line. But these are not unimportant. We're going to see in a moment they express much about God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness. God is sovereign in the affairs of Israel, and God is sovereign in the affairs of the nations of this world. We are seeing things that God prophesied happen in our very day. And so, God gave the Jewish people an unconditional promise concerning a land that is yet to be fulfilled. And God keeps his promises. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And so, Malachi starts here in verse 4, asking the people to look to the past and remember. Remember. Remember the covenant that God made with Moses there in Horeb. But he doesn't stop there. Second point there on your outline, not only are we to look past, look to the past and remember, but in verses 5 and 6, he underscores, we are to look to the future and watch. Notice carefully verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, if you remember from the context, verses 1 through 3, Malachi speaks of this judgment that will take place at the end of the tribulation period at the second coming of Christ when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. But now he speaks of Elijah coming again before notice, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us, we've learned in our study of Daniel and Revelation that the phrase, the day of the Lord, is not in reference to a 24-hour day, but to an extended period of time. The day of the Lord, it includes the great tribulation period, the second coming, the millennial reign of the Messiah, and it has the characteristics of a biblical day. A biblical day for a Jew starts at sundown and it goes to sundown the next day. And so the day of the Lord starts in the shadows of the great tribulation. And as you move through that seven-year period, it gets darker and darker and darker, and there's an event right in the middle of the seven years, what the prophet Daniel calls the abomination of desolation that Jesus quotes in Matthew 24, 15, that will change a time of trouble into a time of horrible trouble, great and unbelievable trouble as the trumpet and bold judgments unfold. Jesus marking that as a mark of demarcation will then say in Matthew 24, 21, for then, after the Antichrist commits this horrendous crime, for then, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. So the worst part of the tribulation, what Malachi is calling the great and terrible day of the Lord, happens in the second half, and we are promised that that Elijah comes before that time. So this places this prophet in the first half of the tribulation. But at the end of that seven-year period, the sun comes out, (laughs) Jesus comes back. What we've been praying for in the Lord's model prayer for 2,000 years will be fulfilled. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and heaven will come to earth, and God will show us. We looked at six reasons for the millennial reign. Why not just take us right to heaven? We studied in the Revelation. You might want to go to that message on the millennium. Why Messiah is going to rule and reign for a 1,000 years. But at the end of the 1,000 years the children of tribulation saints who make it through the tribulation, who unlike us will enter that thousand years in their natural bodies. The curse will be lifted off of creation. They'll have children and grandchildren and multiple generations, and not all will believe. And Satan, who'd been locked up for a thousand years, will be loose, and he will tempt the nations of the world, and it will get dark again, but then it will get bright as we enter into the eternal state. Now, the question is this. Will the prophet Elijah... Come again. Well, obviously, I think so because I've entitled the sermon, The Return of Elijah. But don't take my word for it. I want you to understand what the Scripture says. That's our authority. Now, remember, there are two comings of Christ with two forerunners. The Messiah first comes to die on a cross to be pierced through for our iniquities. But the prophet said his body would not undergo decay. He descended to heaven, but then he would come again to rule and reign on the earth. And in each case, God brought a forerunner. The first forerunner is mentioned in Malachi chapter 3. Turn back a page or two in your, in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. And notice, if you will, verse 1. God said, "'Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me.'" Now, who is this messenger who will clear the way before the Lord? Now, a minority, mostly liberal commentators say, well, my messenger is translating the word malak. And so they say, well, this is in reference to the prophet Malachi. And also that Hebrew word is related to the Old Testament word for an angel, a messenger. Angels are messengers. And so in the New Testament in Angelos, it's called a messenger of God. But I know that's not in tr- not in view. Number one, the Messiah who's in view doesn't come for 400 years after this prophecy of So this is not about Malachi or some angel, not to mention the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so sometimes God will give us divine commentary in the New Testament as He looks back on an Old Testament verse. And so we know this person your, my messenger, to be John the Baptist. Put out in the margin next to Malachi 3, 1, Malachi, uh, Matthew eleven seven 7 through 10. Matthew 11, 7 through 10. Let me read it to you. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. That reminds me of most preachers today. They got their tight jeans and their $400 shoes and they just wanna be cool. And they think I'm old fashioned for wearing a tie. Look, I went into the Oval Office one day and you couldn't go into that Oval Office unless you had a suit on. I'm not here to worship the President. I'm here to worship the living God. And I'm not saying you need to come in a suit. Trust me, you don't have to. You can come in jeans, you can come however you want. But what these preachers are doing is they've brought great disrespect to the ministry today. So they come to church like they're going to the beach. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, a prophet. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. And he quotes Malachi speaking about John the Baptist in the context. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And so Jesus tells us John the Baptist is the first forerunner, and Malachi's prophecy is fulfilled in John. Now, the other Old Testament passage that predicts the coming of John is found in Isaiah. You might want to put out in the margin next to three one Isaiah 40. Uh, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah the prophet, he predicts 300 years before Malachi that John will come. Let me read it to you. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And again, I know that this is in in reference to John the Baptist. How? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament credit it of John the Baptist. Listen, for instance, what Matthew writes in Matthew 3, 1 to 3. Put that in the margin next to Malachi 3 in verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But now Malachi speaks of still another forerunner, not John, but another forerunner who won't come before Yeshua at the first coming, but he will come before Jesus at the second coming. And so he writes here in verses 5 and 6, of the one that Jesus spoke of, the one that John the Apostle alluded to in the Revelation. And I want you to see that the Lord Jesus clearly concurs with the prophet Malachi that Elijah is coming a second time. Hold your finger here and turn to the gospel of Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, if you would. Matthew 17. It's in the New Testament. It's just the next book over if you're new to the Bible. Now, I know many of you are new to the faith and you're not familiar with this, but the passage that I want to exposit in this section won't make much sense if I don't read the first nine verses. So I'm going to basically read them without a lot of comment. Uh, Matthew 17, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy made right at the end of chapter 16. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice of the cloud said, and this is one of three times in the New Testament, three different occasions God the Father speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And that's an important statement that he makes. Because if you remember... Peter, when Jesus said, Lord, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, he rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. See, they didn't yet have a full, clear picture of all that Jesus is going to accomplish and that he will do it in two different time frames. So he said, I don't want you to speak about this, and I'm sure those men honored it, these three, and it would have been very tempting to tell the other apostles, don't even speak of this until after the death and resurrection takes place, because then things are gonna cement and come together for them. So after they see Moses and Elijah with Jesus, we're told here in verse 10, and his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, the disciples had been taught that before Messiah comes, Elijah Elijah is going to show up a second time. That's what the scribes taught, and they were right on. They were accurate, and Jesus will affirm it. And by the way, that's why when Jesus was at that place called Caesarea Philippi, some of you have been there with me. It's a class A archaeological site. It's like, yeah, it happened right here. And they, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? What do you guys say? And the disciples responded. It's recorded in Matthew 16, 14. And they say, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah. Why would they say Elijah? Because that's what the scribes taught them. And the scribes had access to the scriptures like Malachi. And so they thought, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some say, Jesus, you're the forerunner in Malachi 3. Some say, you're the forerunner in Malachi 4. Some say, you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Well, according to Malachi's prophecy, Elijah was going to appear before the second advent of Messiah. However, what the disciples had not yet comprehended was that there were two comings of Messiah. Messiah. And the prophets of old anticipated not only a Messiah who would suffer and die, but one who would rule and reign. And when you're under the oppression of Rome, you obviously want the latter picture. And so the Scripture teaches, however, that the death of Christ would precede the reign of Christ. And so Christ's death did not come out of a failure, but out of God's program, because it was all part of his program. Remember Peter in 1 Peter 1.11, he said that the prophets spoke of, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And so Jesus agrees with the scribes that Malachi's prophecy is yet to happen. And so he responds to their question here in Matthew 17 in verse 11. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So it's very clear Elijah is coming a second time as the forerunner of Jesus. And he is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That measures the second half of the tribulation. It's all called the tribulation period. But the first half, when the Antichrist is ruling as a man of peace, isn't anything, as we've studied, compared to the judgments coming in the second half. The sealed judgments, as Matthew 24 unfolds, perfectly parallels. Those are just what Jesus calls the birth pangs. But then the event happens when the Antichrist goes into the temple and makes himself out to be God, and things really get troublesome. And so Jesus plainly taught that Elijah is coming before that second half. And when he comes, as we'll see this morning, he's going to restore all things. So we read in verse 12, notice, he said, But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, Jesus makes a double-edged statement here. By affirming Malachi's prophecy, Elijah is coming, but also by affirming the fact that in one sense, Elijah has come. He's already come. Why? Because John the Baptist is predicted in his birth, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's not double talk. On the one hand, he already came in the sense that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He did the work that Elijah did. What did Elijah do? He called the people to repentance. They were in unbelief. And of course, only a remnant responded. Elijah preached to King Ahab. John the Baptist preached to King Herod. Both tried to kill both men. And of course, King Herod was successful. Both men preached to the multitudes and in both cases only a few a remnant responded. And so Jesus says in Matthew 11:14, "And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come." In what sense was John the Baptist Elijah who was to come? Again, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah as Gabriel told his daddy would happen, he even dressed and ministered in the same manner as Elijah. And like Elijah, John the Baptist preached a message of judgment to an apostate, unbelieving nation. And so John fulfilled the prophecy of being the first forerunner, and he fulfilled the prophecy of being the second forerunner only in the sense that his life mimicked what Elijah the prophet did. But he's clear that the scribes are correct. And so after the transfiguration, after John is already dead, remember, John's already dead at this point. He's already been murdered. And after he's dead and murdered, Jesus said, Elijah is coming to restore all things. And again, back here in Malachi 4 and verse 5, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now you say, Pastor, is there any record anywhere in Scripture As to how this might unfold, yes, there is. Hold your finger here and go to the book of Revelation chapter 11. Let me dust off your mind with a very important passage of Scripture. It was actually two years and three months ago that we were in Revelation chapter 11. It seemed like yesterday. And so in Revelation 11, John speaks of two men who are coming during the tribulation period that perfectly coincide with what we've been studying here in Malachi 4. Malachi 4. Now, their coming is a sermon in itself. In fact, I would preached two sermons on it that you can get at searchthescriptures.org or on the phone app. You can download them for free if that will be of help to you. He starts with a description, Revelation 11 and verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. God in Scripture, often to underscore the specificity of coming judgment, will often measure it in terms of months or days or weeks to show that there's a beginning and there's a duration to it. And so, the great flood was defined in terms of months. And this judgment, in terms of 1,260 days, also 42 months. And so, they minister... In the first half of the tribulation, while the sealed judgments are unfolding on the earth, and at the end of the 1260 days, the Antichrist murders them. And again, we've studied this and we've gone through every text of Scripture. And after they're murdered, the, bo- the Bible says their bodies are laid there in the streets, nobody touches them. Why? Because the world's rejoicing. Ah, oh, these guys and all the heartache they've brought us, and the message that we couldn't stand listening to—they're dead. And so for three and a half days, they rejoice, and the devil's Christmas takes place, and people send gifts one to another, celebrating their death. But of course, God raises them up and brings them into heaven. But as um, Jesus said. The Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, he says in Matthew, For then, after this event, the abomination of desolation, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, the Antichrist walks into the temple, everything changes. Before this, there was a world religion under every stripe in the world, much like the Catholic pope is forming today, where he brings all these religious leaders from all these different isms, and he's saying, we're all going to God, just choose your path. That's heresy, my friend. But now the Antichrist narrows the focus. He said, no, there's one religion, and it's my religion. And unless you take my mark, you will die, and you will not be able to buy anything. And when that event happens, Jesus then says, "'For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be.'" This is what Malachi is speaking of as the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's why God has these two men in the first half of the tribulation, Obviously, if the tribulation is a measured seven years, you couldn't have three and a half more days with dead people laying in the street. It's all over by then. They ministered during the first half, calling the Jewish people there on the Temple Mount to repentance. Pastor Jeff is speaking on the tabernacle this Wednesday. The tabernacle is a beautiful picture of the work of Messiah. Some of you came with me. In Israel, some Messianic Jews had reconstructed the tabernacle. And in every thread, every stone, piece of furniture, it all pictures the work of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So the temple does. And so God is very, very clear that Messiah is going to come. But before He comes, there'll be two witnesses, and they're in the Temple Mount. They'll be explaining to the Jewish people, let me tell you what the meaning of these sacrifices are and what's going to happen. There's going to be a huge conversion in Israel. There's going to be this great influx of people who are going to come to know Jesus as his Savior, and then at the end of that seven years, Jesus will reign. So here's the prophet Malachi. He concurs with the Lord Jesus, and John concurs with Malachi and Jesus that there's coming a portion of the day of the Lord that has a good and a bad side to it. You read some passages, and you scratch your head, and you say, I thought the day of the Lord was awful. Some aspects are. You're reading another passage and you say, man, this is a marvelous time. Some aspects are because it's this extended period of time. So we know Elijah is coming and we know when he is coming in the first half of the tribulation. Now, stay with me, Revelation eleven 3. We're not dealing with the milk of the word, but the meat of the word. So pay attention. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, Paul preached a great sermon in Acts 14, and he reminded the people of Lystra that God has never left himself without witness. The days before the flood, God had Noah. In the dark days of Israel's history, he had the prophet Elijah. He's always had his witness teams, whether it's Moses and Aaron or Joshua and Caleb or Paul and Silas. And here are two witnesses who are preaching to the people of Israel and by extension to the world. And many people will hear and believe, but not all will. And so here in this final stretch of human history for 42 months or 1,260 days, in a time of great apostasy amongst the Jewish people who are largely unbelief, they're going to believe. Now look at verse 4. They're further described. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. They're described as olive trees and as lampstands because the olive tree is the source of olive oil And that's described back in chapter 1 of the Revelation as being emblematic of the Holy Spirit. He is described as a type in the Old Testament of olive oil. Why? Because He gives you strength. Uh, We sang that song, Keep Me Burning, Burning, Burning for the Lord. It's really uh, from the typology that comes from the Old Testament and even from Revelation chapter 1. And if you remember the prophet Zechariah chapter 4, he speaks of two olive trees that drip into the golden lampstand. Again, all symbolic. And so these men are anointed by the Spirit of God. And let me just say parenthetically, if you're going to minister for God, you better minister in the power of the Holy Spirit or your ministry is just activity. If you want it to count, you need to do it in His power. So these two witnesses, they're spiritually prepared. They're empowered by God. Look look at verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth. And devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. What we have here are fire-breathing prophets. Not only do they preach hellfire and brimstone, they literally breathe it. People say, are you sure? Of course I am. Look, if God can create a fire-breathing dragon, if he can make a donkey talk, then he can make a human breathe fire. If you can believe the first verse in the Bible, you can believe any other verse in the Bible. And that's why the first verse is under such attack. You don't mess with these two men. These men are immortal. They are immune to any kind of attack until their mission is complete. And in one sense, all of God's people are immortal and immune until your mission is complete. Now, if you quit early, God may take you early. Too many quitters. You should be working right to the end for Christ. You never stop living for him, my friend. And it's a comforting thought to me that I'm immortal until God says, Carl, your ministry is over. Look at verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Not only do they have power over individuals, they have power over nations. They control the rain on the earth, the text says, they have power to shut up the sky during the days of their prophesying. So the nations of the world will fear them. They will hate them. And if you want to have clean drinking water that has not turned into blood, and if you don't want fire breathed on you, you better listen to them because they have power from God. Now, as you probably know, there's a lot of speculation as to the identity of these two people. Now, it's almost unanimous among theologians and Bible students that Elijah must be at least one of these two men. Why? Because he's going to come back. Jesus said it. Malachi said it. He's going to come in the first half of the tribulation period, the same time these two witnesses minister. But the question doesn't usually debate over Enoch. It's who's the second fella. Now, some would say that this is Enoch and Elijah, because if you remember, Enoch, like Elijah was physically taken off the earth without seeing death in the traditional way. In Genesis 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, why? For God took him. And then in Hebrews 11, when it comments on this event, the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven five 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him off. And if you were here last week, we studied 2 Ki- uh, Kings 2.11, and they, meaning Elijah and Elisha, and they were going along and talking. Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And nothing more is said about the destination to which they're taken. The writer says that Elijah was taken to heaven, and the Hebrew word is shamam Same word in the beginning, God created the Shemaim, the heavens and the earth. It can refer to one of three things. It can refer just to the sky, it can refer to outer space, or it can refer to the very throne room of God. Now, I can tell you with absolute authority that neither of these two men went into the throne room of God. And some people, that's what they think because they're not thinking carefully and soundly. So they think, oh, this would be a good pick because these guys never saw death. Now, stay with me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23 that the very first person ever to rise from the dead to receive a glorified body was the Lord Jesus. In addition, we know from that same chapter, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Then he'll say, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Understand, Enoch and Elijah would need glorified bodies to walk in the throne room of God. And the first one ever to receive such a body is the Lord Jesus. Therefore in both cases we cannot say from these passages that these men entered into the presence of God in bodily form because God had not yet pulled that off and he would not pull it off until Jesus died on the cross and as the first fruits was raised from the dead not to mention Jesus plainly said in John 3:13 no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven the son of man at this point in human history no one, had ascended into heaven. And so it's theologically possible for a human to precede Christ into heaven. Not to mention, had it been possible for the Father to have permitted fallen men, like Enoch and Elijah, to enter into heaven in bodily form before Jesus' death and resurrection, then in a technical sense, Jesus would not have had to have died. I mean, if the Father possessed another way in which to take someone into heaven before Jesus died, then he could have found another way of salvation, but he did not. Now, these men are what we call a type. A type is tupos in the New Testament Greek. It's a, it's a print. It's an illustration. It's a picture of an Old Testament reality that's fulfilled in the New Testament. So, for instance, Isaac in Hebrews 11, it is called a type of Christ up there on top of Mount Moriah. He is the monogene, the uniquely begotten, not like Jesus, but he is a miracle baby in that when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90, they have a baby. Jesus is a monogene, only of two people is that said of the only begotten in all of Scripture Jesus and Isaac. But Jesus, of course, his birth was unique in that he was born supernaturally, took on our human, humanity, divinity was brought together inseparably with perfect, sinless humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit without a human father. But understand, a type is not the same as the reality. And so these two men in one sense were a type of rapture and that God permitted these men without seeing physical death to enter into heaven. And so Paul speaks in this great resurrection chapter, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we're not all die. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. But understand, a type is not the same as the reality. Isaac was not the same as the Lord Jesus who actually died and was indeed the eternal God in humanity. So these men did not see death, but neither were they brought into bodily form into heaven. But I think we could safely assume, based on Luke chapter 16, that their souls were brought into what the Bible calls Abraham's bosom. Or Old Testament paradise, different from New Testament paradise. And they shed their bodies, so to speak, at that point, just like Samuel was appeared before Saul, and he's given some kind of a spirit body. And Moses and Elijah, who, by the way, are recognizable humans, as you will be recognizable in your resurrection body. But it appears their soul, no doubt, based on Luke 16, went to Abraham's bosom. But in either case... God granted both of these men remarkable departures from the earth. But what I'm trying to say is to try to dogmatically say, well, it's got to be Moses and Elijah because they didn't see death, and they're in resurrection bodies, is to miss the whole tenor of Scripture. So it seems almost certain that one of the two is Enoch. But let's go back to Malachi 4. Behold, I am coming... To send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now it's interesting to note that the time in human history that he's describing is the tribulation period. And it's interesting to note too that Moses is mentioned in verse four, like Elijah is mentioned in verse five. And these two witnesses have ministries that mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah. On three occasions, Elijah brought fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel, and then with those two companies of 50 men, so 102 men with their captains died that day. In addition, Moses is the one who turned the waters into blood. And I find it interesting that when Christ is speaking about the coming kingdom that is preceded with the time of the great and horrible day of the Lord that he has Moses and Elijah on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. But hear me, while Christians might debate who these witnesses are, absolutely no one debates what they are going to do and what God will pull off through them. And I think sometimes it is good that God withholds information from us. Why? Because you have to search the scriptures. Some of us would not be searching the Scriptures this morning about the resurrection and the order of how it unfolds were it not for the fact that God left some things untold to us. And God wants us to mind the truths of Scripture, as Proverbs will repeatedly say. We're talking about important things. People talk about the ball game and their favorite pop star. Those are meaningless things. We're talking about eternal things, things that really matter in life. And two men are coming, two witnesses, who just happen to have the same kind of ministries that Moses and Elijah have. And so God tells them in Malachi to remember Moses, and then he brings up Elijah, and understand, at this point in the nation of Israel, for the most part, their minds are blinded. Why are their minds blinded? Not all of them. There's a couple hundred thousand Jews for Jesus in the United States, but most Jews are in unbelief. Why? Because of their hardness of heart. And so God is saying, remember, respond, and thank God it's going to happen, and it's going to happen during the seven-year period when Elijah comes to preach. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. And since there's one author from Genesis to Revelation who perfectly brings together both Testaments, by the Spirit of God, there's one consistent thread through it. And so numerous prophets, whether it's Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Zechariah, point to this coming great and terrible day of the Lord when Israel will be converted. So here in verse 6, God reveals when Elijah comes, And what it is that he's going to do. Look at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6. We get the end game. I'm almost done. Stay with me. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, there's all kinds of crazy interpretations about this verse. Certainly, it has absolutely nothing to do with what the Mormon church teaches. Joseph Smith says, quoting Malachi verse 6 of chapter 4, that this is in reference to Nephite, the, prophet, uh, the Nephite prophet Moroni, who appeared to Joseph Smith and said that he was given Elijah's priesthood on September the 21st, 1823. It has nothing to do with this. And that's why they have the family values that they have today. That's what he said, and that's what he taught, and that's what Mormons teach. Of course, Joseph Smith, I hope you know, had 40 wives. And in 2014, the Mormon church had to admit it because it was documented in writing all over the internet. So they concur and admit, yes, he had 48 wives, and his youngest wife was 14 years old. I want to tell you, he was a pervert, and he habitually took Scripture out of context to make it mean whatever he wanted it to mean. Now, some real Christian people, because they believe there's no future for the Jewish people, and they think the church is the new Israel, you will hear them preach this passage and say, well, this is a prophecy of God, you know, bringing together the generation gap between fathers and sons and daughters, and and that dads will take the spiritual leadership that it should take, and that the children and the dads will come together. Now, while it's admirable for a father to take spiritual leadership in his home and to nurture the hearts of his children, this text has nothing to do with the reconciliation of families. Look at it again. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, please note, he's not talking about a father, but fathers. And Malachi is speaking of the fathers of Israel. And in every Jew reading this, even to this day, they think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, because God repeatedly refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Put out in the margin Exodus 3 in verse 15. Let me read it to you. God, furthermore, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to all the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Likewise, when Stephen is preaching to a Jewish audience who want to stone him to death, who do stone him to death, in Acts 7 and verse 32, he reminds them, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. And so Malachi 4 and verse 6 needs to be interpreted in the context of the whole of Scripture. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The words their children is not a reference to your children or my physical descendants, but rather to the children of Israel. And this is the way, by the way, that Luke in the New Testament, when he relates this prophecy, understood it. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So put out in the margin, Luke 1, 15 through 17, the angel Gabriel appeared to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, and speaking of this baby that it was going to be conceived in Elizabeth's womb with this old couple, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here it is. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's Malachi 4.6. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Before John the Baptist was born, God's angel Gabriel predicted that this man, John, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And while John freely admitted that he came to prepare the way of the Lord, he equally said, I'm not Elijah. Remember that encounter? Let me read it to you from John 1, put out in the margin, John 1, 21 to 23. They said to him, to John, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Meaning, are you the Messiah? Deuteronomy 18, he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And so as we studied this morning, when Jesus called John the Baptist, Elijah who was to come. He conditioned that designation, that title, if you are willing to accept it, but they were not willing to accept it. And that's why Malachi 4 is not completely fulfilled, but will be fulfilled when Elijah actually literally comes. Please don't miss the whole point here in Malachi. He, Elijah, to come will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. He is saying there is coming a time when the hearts of the people of Israel will be restored to the faith of the fathers. Read the prophet Zechariah. He's a contemporary of the prophet Malachi. And he speaks of the conversion of the Jewish people during this same time frame, during the great tribulation. And so when Elijah the prophet comes, he will turn the children of Israel and they will look back with fondness on the faith of their fathers. Men like Abraham, remember what Jesus said of Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And like Abraham who saw Jesus' day and believed, So the Jewish people will believe. And the fathers in turn will be delighted with what the children of Israel are doing as they look with favor upon their spiritual offspring. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so through these 10 messages on the prophet Elijah, We've seen he's a very significant person in Israel's history because, one, when he was here, he turned a remnant of Israelis from worshiping Baal back to worshiping the one true God, Hashem. Now, why will Elijah seek to restore the people to faith? He gives us the reason. So that, you might want to circle those two words, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, please note, he does not speak of the earth. One translation only does that. It has nothing to do with manuscripts. Haaretz. He's talking about the land, and in every situation, the land here is the land of Israel. That's precisely what the Hebrew text says. Unless I send the prophet Elijah to preach the gospel before the Messiah comes back, I will have no choice But to curse the land. See, the people of Israel and the land are inseparable. And if the Lord would not send Elijah the prophet, if he did not turn the hearts of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus, then he would have one choice but to strike the land with a curse instead of blessing it. But because the Jews will turn to faith in Christ, blessing will come. The Son of righteousness will rise with healing in the wings. And God will not curse the land, but bless the land. Now, what's true of a Jew is true of a Gentile. In John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides in him. Jew or Gentile alike, the one whose heart is not turned to Jesus, the Messiah, is under curse. And you can try to escape that truth, but it is inescapable. Now, let me close with three brief applications. What can we learn from our passage of Scripture? Number one, the Jewish nation is God's chosen nation. Remember how this prophet opened? He opens and closes the same way. In Malachi 1 and verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? There's no more pathetic words in the entire Bible. God says, I love you, and the Jewish people say, how have you loved us? And so Malachi writes this book during a very difficult time in Israel's history where the people were doubting the love of God. And so they sarcastically ask in the opening verses, how have you loved us? To which God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I love Jacob. Most of you know this verse from its quotation in Romans 9 and verse 13 where Paul quotes it from the Septuagint, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This verse has nothing to do that God chose one boy to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. My Reformed friends teach that because they don't think there's any future for Israel, and they think they're the new Israel. It's a distorted and a a profound, uh, out-of-context use of the prophet Malachi. You read Romans 9 through 11, and you discover that the descendants of Jacob, who is given a new name, Israel, becomes God's chosen people from which the Christ will come. God had a plan for Jacob just as he had a plan for Esau. God had a plan for Isaac just as he had a plan for Ishmael. And God had a plan for the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, just as he had a plan for the descendants of Esau called the Edomites. And so the book opens in the same way it closes. God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be the people from whom he would bless the nations because our Messiah is from that people. Our Messiah is a Jew. And so in Malachi 3, the prophet spells out the horrible time of judgment that will come on the Jewish people who do not believe. It's kind of like a man on an airplane from Atlanta to Tel Aviv. The airplane, everyone in it is headed to one destination. Let that airplane represent the nation. God has a destination and a plan for the people of Israel. But the people on the airplane have individual choices. You can choose this meal over this meal, this drink over that drink, this movie over another. Even so, the descendants of the nation are set apart as a people because God brought Messiah the first time through Israel, and he's going to bring Messiah back a second time through Israel. But that doesn't automatically mean that every Jew goes to heaven any more than it means every Gentile goes to heaven. Unless you come and call upon Yeshua in faith, you will regret it for all of eternity. Secondly, I not only am reminded that the Jewish people are God's chosen people. And by the way, when you meet these Christians who call themselves Christians and they're (laughs) anti-Semites, They are grossly ignorant, and they're not true Christians. Number two, God always keeps his promises. You know, God made some promises to the nation concerning a land, of seed, and a blessing. And although Israel is largely unbelief, God's going to keep his promises. Romans 8 ends, can anything separate us from the love of God? And Paul goes through every conceivable category. And so the logical question that would come up is, well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, what about Israel? You said that you loved them with an everlasting love. You promised them peace in their land. What's happened? And so Paul reminds us in Romans 9 and verse 6 that the word of God has not failed. God will keep his promises to Israel. And that's how 9, 10, and 11 unfold. Calvin, God bless him, you'll see him in heaven. But he had a warped perspective of the Jewish people, and it affected every commentary he wrote. And so he came to 9, 10, and 11, and he missed the whole point of it. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hate it. He is going back to Genesis 25. Two nations are in your womb. It's God choosing one nation out of all the nations of the world. And so Romans 9 deals with that, how God elected Ju- the Jewish people in the past. In chapter 10, he deals with their rejection in the present. But in chapter 11, he deals with their restoration in the future. And Paul tells us that there's coming a time, just like Malachi says, when their hearts will be restored and they'll believe in Jesus because God will keep every promise and God cannot lie. Third and finally, God has only one way of salvation. God has always had only one way of salvation. Now, I think it's significant that the Old Testament ends with a curse. Why do you think that happens? Because you see the law of Moses and good works and good deeds never brings salvation. The prophecy of Malachi, the last prophet writing the last book of the Old Testament, concludes with a curse, just like Paul recorded in Galatians 3, quoting Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. You cannot keep the law of God and be saved unless you keep it perfectly. And if you're trying to get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments or following the golden rule or getting baptized or confirmed or joining some church, you'll spend an eternity without God. But I thank God for Galatians 3 and verse 1. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, for my sin. He was our substitute, taking our place, bearing God's wrath. That if you will call upon him, he will instantly save you. He'll place the Spirit of God in you so that God will become real to you in a way that you never imagined. And when you die or when Jesus comes, he'll take you straight up into heaven. Let's bow our hearts. Thus says the Lord, who gives His sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, Then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Father, you are so faithful. You said that as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are hanging above, that that is how long your unfailing promises to Israel are. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you kept every prophecy concerning Messiah's first coming, and you will keep every prophecy concerning his second. Thank you that you've allowed us to live in a time frame of human history where we can actually watch you set the stage for the return of your son. And it may be sooner than any of us think, so I pray today for someone knowing the urgency of the hour. You promised that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved, but they must come in faith. They must come as a bankrupt, fallen person. Admitting that they're never good enough and can't be good enough. Help someone who wants to have their sin forgiven and changed to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. Help us to obey it and to follow it closely this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation as we close our service off. And maybe you're here and you never openly confess Jesus as Lord. You may be in Graves. You may be in Graniteville. And you need to make a public confession for Jesus. Now, public confession should be seen in baptism. Baptism is always done after conversion, never as an infant in Scripture. Believe and then be baptized. And if you've not had believer's baptism, that's an act of obedience. If you're a believer and you've been baptized and you don't have a church home, you need one. Every Christian should be a member of a Bible-believing church. You may be online, but you made a decision. You said in faith today, Jesus, save me. Fill out a guest card. I'll call you personally if you fill it out and help you to find a Bible-believing church in your state. So Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, I want to ask you to leave your seat and meet me here in the front. Would you come?